1: this hour of the costa report is brought to you by ibm big data at the speed of business Welcome
2: to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa and thank you for joining me for another 2 hours of straight talk radio. I want to spend a uh, uh extend a special welcome to members of our armed forces, especially those of you who are serving us abroad and joining us over the internet. Thank you for being with us again. In just a moment, four-term United States Representative from New York, Mr. Rick Lazio, will be joining us to address an issue which is as fundamental to our nation as employment, health care, clean food, air and water, and education, the issue of affordable housing. With much of the news focused on turmoil abroad, it's important not to let something as basic to our existence as shelter get away from us. And this is one of the areas where Lazio's record speaks for itself. But before Mr. Lazio joins us, as is my custom each week, let me tell you a little about his background. Enrico Anthony Lazio was born in Amityville, New York. He received his undergraduate degree from Vassar College and his law degree from the American University Washington College of Law. Lazio first won elected office in 1989 when he became a member of the Suffolk County Legislature. In 1992, he successfully defeated 18-year incumbent Tom Downey to become the United States Representative for New York's 2nd Congressional District, a position Lazio served through 2001. While in Congress, Lazio became Deputy Majority Whip, Assistant Majority Leader, and Chairman of the House Banking Subcommittee on Housing. You may also remember that Lazio was a late entry in the race for the New York Senate against Hillary Clinton in 2000, winning 49 of New York's 62 counties before Clinton's victory. And a decade later, he was briefly a candidate for governor, a campaign from which he withdrew. Since that time, there has been rampant speculation about Lazio's political career, though he has pursued success in the private sector as the managing director of J.P. Morgan's Chase uh, and as a partner in the law firm of Jones Walker. I also want to add that Mr. Lazio is a popular guest on Meet the Press. Bill Maher Face the nation this week, The O'Reilly Factor, and other television and radio news programs. It's my pleasure to welcome to the Costa Report former Congressman Rick Lazio. Thank you for joining us today, Mr. Lazio.
3: Rebecca, it's wonderful to be on, and thanks for your good service in uh, educating the public and giving them something to think about. I really enjoy the quality of your show.
2: Well, thank you so much. We we have a great team here of engineers, researchers. I'm afraid uh, I can take very little of the credit when you see all the people that support me, and I'm sure you feel the same way. Uh, in elected office, you know, you you have such a great. Uh, staff and uh, and so many supporters, it's it's kind of hard to take any bows, but I appreciate the compliment. Uh, I mentioned in my opening that housing is as basic a human need as food and water, and yet it seems to kind of been pushed off the radar ever since the subprime mortgage fiasco. So I thought maybe we could start with the basics. What exactly do we mean when we say affordable housing?
3: Well, generally, the 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 standard that's used uh, would be housing that does not cost the tenant or homeowner more than 30% of their annual income Mm -hmm. in rent or to service the mortgage. The the shorthand of that really is people that that can afford to live in a house without making the kind of trade-offs that compromise their health or their education or their ability to be in the workforce, part of a thriving community uh, where people are in healthy, safe houses, where children can be raised and can do their homework in, in a quiet, uh, healthy environment. And you're absolutely right, Rebecca, when, when almost on a weekly basis, if you watch television, you watch the news shows, you listen to the, the news on the radio, you get your news on uh, online, you're hearing about employment you're hearing about health care you're hearing about education all very important issues, but it's a rare day when you hear about affordable housing and in my mind, I think about housing as a catalyst to organize your life uh, you know if you're if you're a woman who's starting her first day on the job, think about how much more successful you're going to be if you had a good night's sleep in a in a decent bed and you can get your shower and, and get clean clothes on and go to work in the morning as opposed to if your bed the night before was in an abandoned van or well, what child is going to be ready for homework uh, the next day if if they slept under a bridge the night before? What senior is going to be prepared to, to make her appointment uh, for her hypertension m- medicine at the clinic if uh, at the night before uh, the park bench was their bed? So... It's a very important foundational issue and it's virtually impossible to get your life together if you don't have some place to go back to that you can call a safe home.
2: That that's absolutely true. Any person who's gone through the process of moving their household just from one house to another is so disrupted and so discombobulated. I mentioned this because I just moved in this last week, and you know, I, I my whole life was in boxes, and I I just couldn't think straight. I couldn't I couldn't operate that way. So anybody who's been through a moving experience certainly understands that. In a recent article, you pointed out the undeniable evidence between housing insecurity. Uh, and behavioral issues and long-term outcomes when it comes to children.
3: Right. Yeah, this again gets to the point that that children that are, that are raised with lots of housing insecurity where they've got numerous moves, they're constantly... Uh, Having to, to move because they can't pay the rent, or they're living in substandard housing, living in basement apartments, they're in they're in unhealthy uh, uh, settings where there's lots of yelling and, and violence, and, and uh, you know, aesthetically, uh, really a very challenging environment. Those kids are much more likely to have uh, negative health consequences, not just asthma, which we hear we hear about quite a bit, but a number of other important uh, health consequences and, and of course at school that also plays out if you're if you're if you're tired if you're uh, if you're in a place that's infested with cockroaches or or mice um, if you're if you if you don't really have a working refrigerator or or a stove and you're not you know eating having a decent meal you may not, as a child, get your first decent meal until you get to school in the free lunch program, mm-hmm. um, and you may not be ready for that day of school and that listen to that teacher and be able to focus the way other students uh, are able to focus, and the way we want our children to be focused on on the work that 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 they have before them. If you had a terrible night's sleep, if there was yelling in the next apartment, if the you know, lights were out in the hallway, if they, you know, all, all these consequences to uh, destabilizing your ability to, to focus and to thrive in the classroom. Um, so and these,
2: you've these made are, the point, so, rightly, that you either pay now or you pay later. You either address the source of the problem or you're going to be dealing with behavioral issues, educational issues, hygiene and health care issues later down the road.
3: Yeah, and I, I, you know, I, I am not a, a believer in sort of the goo goo message. You know, we've got to save the world in every way. People uh, <laughs> will have their challenges. They'll, they'll they'll be pulling themselves up if they've got the will to pull themselves up. But they need a little support too. They need to have the the tools to be a success. And I think as an American, we we want all our neighbors to have the tools for success it doesn't guarantee success there is a an element of personal responsibility
2: well i i see you and when i look at your track record i see you as an advocate of making sure the opportunity to pull yourself up is there but there's no guarantees
3: right no you're yeah, absolutely right and but i think the opportunity is an important one and one that is slipping away not just for people that we consider poor, but even for the, for the working class or middle class who have been really moving backward. But the the the, the people that when I talk about housing insecurity, um, you know, obviously the first thing you think about are people that are homeless. And in any given day, there's about 650,000 Americans that are homeless. In my hometown here in Manhattan, there are more homeless people than could fill Yankee Stadium a uh, a sellout crowd more homeless children than could could fill uh, Madison Square Garden.
2: Now, we do think about the homeless, but as you point out, the housing problem extends far beyond the homeless. Uh, It it really touches all aspects of our life in America. Uh, We have to take a short break, but stay tuned. When we come back, we're going to be talking more to Rick Lazio about how the lack of affordable housing affects businesses, affects local communities, and exactly how big is the problem. Listening to the Costa Report.
1: In the opening of All Quiet on the Western Front, Eric Maria Remarque wrote, This book is to be neither an accusation nor a confession, and least of all, an adventure. For death is not an adventure to those who stand face to face with it. It will simply try to tell of a generation of men who, even though they may have escaped its shells, were destroyed by the war. Today, Project Healing Waters offers men and women that have escaped the shells of war the opportunity to heal by teaching our returning veterans to fly fish in some of the most beautiful, tranquil rivers in our country. These natural surroundings have the ability to restore the human spirit, and with your help, Project Healing Waters is able to reach out to thousands of our men and women in the military every year. For information on how you can help, go to projecthealingwaters.org. Please give and give generously to those who have put their lives on the line for you. That's projecthealingwaters.org. Help those who have escaped the shells of war and need your help to come all the way back.
2: Now, if you've been listening to the Costa Report, you know that I'm a big fan of wines by Caraccioli Cellars, and today I'm here with Scott Caraccioli. Who's one of the brains behind the most memorable wines money can buy? So I have a question for you. How did your family get into the wine business?
4: Um, you know, 2006, my father, his brother, and uncle were really playing with the idea of planting a vineyard. And planting a vineyard turned into making a bottle, turned into making sparkling wine when um, Michelle came into the picture. So it was really kind of an organic situation, us being in agriculture in the Salinas Valley and then the extension of that went to grapes and here we are today. To find out more about Caraccioli Wines, visit us at www.caracciolicellars.com or stop by our tasting room in downtown Carmel, California. That's Caraccioli Cellars, C-A-R-A-C-C-I-O-L-I, Cellars, where one bottle is never enough.
5: Those who say you can't have your cake and eat it too haven't driven a new Ford C-Max or Fusion Energy plug-in hybrid. Hi, I'm Elliot Geis over here at North Bay Ford in Santa Cruz. You can have the best of both worlds with our new Ford Energy hybrids. You can have the ultra fun driving pleasure of cruising around town on the electricity stored in the Energy's state-of-the-art lithium-ion battery. Then, after 20 or so miles, you can switch the Energy's hybrid engine and drive another 600 miles. So you see, you can have your cake and eat it too when you drive a new Ford C-Max or Fusion Energy car right off the lot at North Bay Ford. But don't take my word for it. Come on down to North Bay Ford and test drive a C-Max or Fusion Energy today. The best deals of the year on new energy cars are ready to roll here at North Bay Ford. You can have your cake and eat it too. Ford plug-in hybrids give you the choice of cruising around town on pure electricity stored in the car's lithium-ion battery or switching to hybrid mode and driving another 600 miles on a single 12-gallon tank. Come on down to 1999 Soquel Avenue, Santa Cruz, or on the web at NorthBayFord.com. Oh my God. An associate
6: recently came home. He found his big barn garage and all the cars, equipment, and personal effects in it burned to a crisp. Was the fire caused by a short, a rodent chewing through old wires? Nobody knows what happened in his walls, but there is a way to know what's happening in your walls, and that's to call on my friend Chris Jensen at J.M. Electric.
7: Thanks, Charles. And yes, it's really important to know whether our electrical circuits can handle the load, because if the circuits fail, well, every year thousands are injured or killed by home electrical fires. Here are two really simple things folks can do to get some peace of mind. First, go to jameelectric.com and take the home electrical safety test. After they answer 12 simple yes or no questions, they will have a good idea about how safe they should feel. If they don't feel safe, they can call JM Electric at 422-7819 and ask for a free current safe home assessment. That's jameelectric at
6: 422-7819. Go to jameelectric.com and take the home electrical safety test. I did, and I'm living easy this summer.
2: Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and my guest today is former four-term congressman from New York, Rick Lazio. And before the break, we were talking about the long-term impact on children and their families of not having a safe and affordable place to live. Now, businesses are uh, are affected, and uh, also public services when there isn't affordable housing. For example, in some areas around the country, they're finding it hard to get police officers, firefighters, teachers, and service workers, because uh, those people can't afford to live in those areas or they have to commute for very long distances. So housing affects these communities in a variety of ways. It might not be that obvious.
3: Yeah, and we're talking about often our children or our grandchildren, uh, and when people hear about affordable housing, I think for many, the images of high-rise public housing Much of which has come down has been has been demolished over the last few years as we've come to understand the the risks and and dangers of over concentrating poverty in certain areas. That's right. In fact, most Mm -hmm. most of the affordable housing, Rebecca, around the country, is is housing built. Um, uh, that, that looks very much like market rate rental housing. Uh, in many places, there's something called the low-income housing tax credit. That's a federal tax credit that incentivizes public capital, puts public capital at risk. Developers come in. They partner sometimes with not-for-profits. Uh, they build housing, and it has in- it's income-restricted, but many of the people who end up living in the, this housing are, are people, as you say, that are important for a growing economy. So you've got a community like mine or in California, high cost area, My, the area I grew up on in Long Island, one of the challenges was that, that young people that were necessary to help staff growing companies couldn't afford to live in the area. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And so they they had two choices. One is they'd have to they'd have to move into a, a lower cost area and then have very long commutes, which were costly, both in terms of of the expense uh, out of pocket and the time that was involved in, in having several hours of commute. And then for other young people, they decide, well, we just can't afford to live here, so. We're talented, we're smart, we could have add to the economy, but we've decided we, we can't afford to, to live here. So it, it, it's an important aspect and strategy for growth to have a place where young people and new workers in the workforce can live. Something called workforce housing is another concept where it's not for the poorest of the poor, but it's meant to provide some limited help for people that need it while they move up the economic ladder.
2: Absolutely. And, you know, just to get a few facts in here, uh, according to HUD, the rent for a two-bedroom apartment has shot up uh, over 41% between 2000 and 2009. So... Um, I have a question for you. What what do you say to folks who say, well, the market will correct that as rental rates make it more profitable to build rentals. So the market will take care of it. We don't really need any kind of government incentive programs. We don't need tax incentive programs. What's your answer to that?
3: My answer to that is if if the the challenge was that, that people were just barely shy of being able to afford a market rate unit, you could have a reasonable argument, but when somebody is out of work, when somebody's a senior or disabled uh, the, the market is not going to correct for those for those folks they They, they need to have a, a a safe, healthy place to live for other people that are uh, again moving up the economic ladder that have had hardship in their lives, that we want to retrain and create higher levels of productivity. This is some of the best investment that we can make as a taxpayer. Think about this. So would you would we rather have somebody on the street moving from apartment to apartment, living in basement apartments, uh, not getting the education that they need to compete in the workforce than having to be subsidized in any number of ways? from food stamps to health assistance and using emergency rooms and all of the outcomes that we know are are, are traditionally uh, connected with, with people that have got severe housing problems, is that a wise way to spend our money or or should we create stability, provide that catalyst for people to organize their lives, get them the worker training, encourage them to be educated, Boost their productivity, have them be independent, contribute tax dollars as a working employee, and have a thriving community. That's the outcome I think most Americans want to see, and unfortunately, it can't happen with a magic wand. Even as much as I believe in market forces, and I believe that the market can play a role in providing more housing, both home ownership and rental, for many Americans, that just won't. Cut it because they 're just so far below median income
2: well also there 's the issue of how fast will the market correct that situation. I read somewhere that uh, we need four point five million units to meet the current demand for affordable housing uh, which is which is really difficult to believe. so where are those people living today i mean four four and a half million units is a lot
3: yeah they're, they're uh, <laughs> You know, th- this is a, a, a huge problem. Um, you know, over h- half of all renters in America are paying over 30% of their income and rent, which is the affordability standard. That's up 40%, 40% since 2002. Yeah. Over te- 10 million of those people, um, renters, another 10 million homeowners are paying more than 50% of their income in either rent or to pay their mortgage they're one illness or job loss away from being on the street, and they make trade-offs that we would not want to make about foregoing medication or uh, a little help for tuition for their son or daughter to be able to go to a school. Uh, and we
2: have to remember that this subprime mortgage crisis – uh, cr- it just exacerbated the demand for rentals because these people right. that lost their homes, they had to go somewhere and they couldn't buy another home, so they were automatically looking for rentals. And, uh, and it really did cause the rental rates to go up and for landlords to have their pick of tenants. I mean, they were saying no pets, no kids, no you know no everything. Uh, so th- this put additional pressure on the rental market.
3: No, you're, you're absolutely right. And, and I would sort of encourage folks to think about this in the broader context. We're looking at our, our economic growth numbers, our GDP numbers, which are very soft, uh, you know, very disappointing from a historic standpoint. We're growing about half the rate of a, of a normal recovery, mm-hmm. uh, you know, so the latest Polling numbers: sixty-six percent of Americans think we're, we're going in the wrong track. This is five and a half years into a recovery, and if, and if you you really drive around past the gated communities, past the places with the fancy cars and the the finely manicured lawns, and and drive through really middle America, people are struggling. They they have stagnant wages, or or they're going backwards, and they're they're. Food costs are going up, their housing costs are going up, and they're really feeling the squeeze.
2: Well, I'll tell you, I'm a, I'm a statistics nut myself, and I read all the government reports, but there's some discrepancy, as you point out, between the reports we're seeing that are coming out and what's really happening on Main Street. And uh, and I see it. I travel all over around the country speaking, and I see the same thing you see. People are struggling. Now we have to take another break, and we'll be right back with more from Rick Lazio. You're listening to The Costa Report. Every day our world gets more complicated. Not only is new information coming at us faster than we can manage, new regulations, technology, and the effects of globalization have made it much more difficult to succeed. That's why I wrote The Watchman's Rattle, a book that, for the first time, explains how complexity makes it hard to separate facts from fiction, and eventually causes us to make important decisions based on unproven beliefs. And not just us. Our leaders also fall prey to this phenomena. But here's the good news. Once you know the symptoms to watch for, you can safeguard against them. So please, go to RebeccaCosta.com. That's RebeccaCosta.com and order your copy of The Watchman's Rattle. It only takes a few minutes and the shipping is free. That's RebeccaCosta.com. Do it now, you'll be glad you did.
4: attention if you're a man who's using the bathroom more each day or waking at night to urinate the next sixty seconds could change your life because we're sending free bottles of super beta prostate to men with the symptoms of an enlarged prostate including more frequent urination trouble urinating waking up at night to go or troubles with intimacy in a published clinical review the active ingredient in super beta prostate was found to reduce the symptoms of an enlarged prostate now you can experience the same results, and the offer is free. You only pay shipping and handling. Just call 1 800 865 0813. Again, if you're a man who's living with an enlarged prostate, you must call now for details on your free bottle of Super Beta Prostate. Supplies are limited, and when this free offer's gone, it's gone. Just call 1 800 865 0813. That's 1 800 865 0813. Call 1-800-865-0813.
7: Hi, Registered Pharmacist Ben Fuchs here. I've been studying healthy bodies for 35 years. And what I've got to tell you may shock and surprise you, but if you listen up, it may change your life. Pharmacy students are taught that the ubiquitous RX prescription symbol refers to the Latin designation to take. But as it turns out, there's another more mysterious and occult tradition associated with the well-known sigil that derives from the religion of ancient Egypt. The Egyptians regarded Horus as the father of medicine. Horus, it is said, was the son of two primary Egyptian deities, Osiris and Isis. He was also the avenger of his father's death at the hands of Osiris' brother, the wicked Uncle Set, with whom he did battle, losing his left eye in the fight. Thoth, the patron deity of physicians and scientists, magically healed the eye and gave it back to Horus, who then used it as a remedy to restore his father Osiris to the world of the living. Thus began the legend of the Eye of Horus, which initially referenced Sirius, the brightest star in the sky. Over time, it was linked to the sun, and from there it was a short leap to connecting the eye to light and sight, and later it became a powerful marker representing healing and rebirth. Egyptians referred to the eye with the term wedjat, meaning whole or health, and they associated the symbol with protection, prosperity, and abundance. And of course, it shows up in modern culture in Freemasonry's all-seeing eye, So what's this got to do with pharmacy? Well, as it turns out, the Eye of Horus bears an interesting resemblance to the Latin designation Rx. While pharmacy students learn that it's a mere directive to the patient, there are those who believe it's actually an acknowledgement of the historical and occult foundations of the ancient practice of pharmacy. Pharmacist Ben here urging you to go to kscohealth.com to order Beyond Tangy Tangerine, the Healthy Start Pack, and other nutritional supplements that I personally use and recommend. You can purchase these premium quality products at wholesale prices online at KSCOHealth.com. That's KSCOHealth.com. I'm the pharmacist that believes that staying healthy and strong is not only about medicine, it's about giving your body the raw materials it needs to do its work. Go to KSCOHealth.com. Make sure you check out the cool videos too at KSCOHealth.com. That's KSCOHealth.com.
2: Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and if you're just joining us today, our guest is Rick Lazio. Now, Mr. Lazio, you you pointed out that uh, private developers who have taken advantage of government resources such as the federal low-income housing tax credits, as well as state housing bond measures have not only profited from building low-income housing, but they've also created jobs, contributed to local economies, and contributed to a better quality of life for our youngsters. So could you tell us a little more about how these private-public partnerships work?
3: Yeah, and I'm Rebecca, I'm I'm very happy to hear you characterize it as a public-private partnership because it's, in fact, exactly what it is. The, the way that the, the low-income housing tax credit works, uh, which is a federal tax credit against your, against your income taxes, and, and many states, by the way, also have state uh, tax credits to incentivize housing. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, 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 the developers, which... Could either be a for-profit or a not-for-profit developer um, will enter into a, a competitive round, or they'll apply for uh, these these tax credits, and they'll 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 do a lot of work in putting together a proposal that gets submitted generally to the state um, housing authority, and and it's not unusual for the applications to. Um, be oversubscribed by five or six to the one dollar of credit that they they have available. Uh, there's a limit based on population for each state what they're allowed to to award. And then once these tax credits are awarded, generally the developers don't use it themselves. They sell the credits uh, to other investors uh, who who will provide the capital, and that capital is used to fund the. Construction of the development. Usually, there's there's debt on top of it. It may be a bond, or it may be a traditional mortgage from a bank, mm-hmm. uh, and there may be other sources of assistance as well. But the idea is to, is to subsidize the construction and the development of the of the of the project, so that the rent restrictions, because there are, there's a limit on how much you you can uh, ask your tenants to pay and how much they can earn uh, that that it becomes affordable and sustainable from an economic standpoint for the developers uh, and at the same time providing affordable housing safe housing for people in need and as you point out correctly we create jobs this way uh, it's the private capital. The private investment dollars that make these projects work. Uh, the private investors are, um, are are keen to make sure that they have protection for their money, so they do the underwriting and they do the due diligence. They do all the work beforehand to make sure that their their investment will be protected. Uh, so there's there's no picking winners and losers, there's, there's no crony capitalism, these are all...
2: No, it's a win it's clearly a win-win where we see these projects uh, come to fruition, uh, but, you know, you've also been uh, very vocal about the fact that Problems like this don't only have to be attacked by the private and public sector. They have to be attacked in a bipartisan way. Absolutely. Uh, But in the current climate in Washington, uh, there's less bipartisan cooperation than ever. So let me ask you this. As a four-term congressman, uh, what's your opinion about what it's going to take to get a bipartisan movement on housing?
3: Well, I think the ingredients of a a successful bipartisan agenda on housing are roughly the same as what you need to move the rest of our public agenda. And that's um, leadership on both sides that are willing to take some risk, uh, meaning that they're going to have to release their sense that it's a zero sum game that I'm only winning when my opponent is losing. They're going to have to, Risk the fact that that the other side may get some credit for a good outcome. Uh, and, and they're going to have to start treating the opposition, whether you're Republican or Democrat, with respect and, and understanding that we're going to have our disagreements. We are not giving up our principles. We're going to have those hard debates. But I can respectfully disagree. I can find the language and the civility to argue hard from my point of view and to work hard for my point of view without demonizing the motives of the other side. We're going to have to find a safe place for compromise where that's no longer a dirty word. I
2: cannot think of a safer issue for both sides to come together than housing and uh, promoting these programs that allow the private and public sector to join forces in a way that's a win-win for everybody. I mean, at a, particularly at a time when we're, we seem obsessed with creating more jobs, well, here's a way that, it, that, that the community the communities benefit, the jobs benefit, those, jo- those people that need jobs turn into taxpayers, they get off of s- social services. I mean, there's so many benefits here.
3: Right. You're absolutely right. I'm going to bring you to Washington.
2: <laughs> That's the last place. I, 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 what I want you to do is get back in there. But, you know, but I, no, oh. me, no. But, I, you know, I just don't understand. I think I speak for a lot of Americans. I don't understand. There, There's no I understand some issues uh, that yeah. the, that the right and the left can't get along on. But this can't be one of them. There, what, what objection would anybody have?
3: You know the, 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 the sad fact is, Rebecca, that there is—I should say it's—it's the the odd fact maybe is—is that—is that there is general bipartisan agreement that there are uh, Republicans who believe in the need to support housing for those in need, uh, and there are a lot of them. And, and in fact, in the last effort to try and overhaul the tax code in the house of representatives the ways and means committee which is the tax writing committee uh, prepared a draft and uh, only four tax credits survived as they tried to eliminate many of the credits and incentives and lower rates and the low-income housing tax credit was one of those that survived i'm not sure that would have been the case 20 or 25 years ago but the more people, members of Congress, Republicans and Democrats, uh, go and actually firsthand see this housing, the, they understand the need of the people in the community. They understand the, through the construction phase, we're creating jobs and we're pr- providing stability within the community. And that allows workers to be more productive in the workforce this is what we, what we need to do. It's part of a key strategy for boosting productivity, strengthening the country, and, and finding the way forward on a bipartisan basis. So the key I, I, I found um, during my legislating days was to appeal to principles that were attractive to each party uh, so you know, by way of example, when I was in the House, I was the uh, author uh, of a bill called the Work Incentives uh, Act, which was meant to provide health care for people, Americans who were disabled, who wanted to go back into the workforce but were afraid if they went back into the workforce, they would lose their, their health care. And so they sat home. Uh, frustrated, uh, but they did what was the smart thing to do in terms of not jeopardizing their their ability to have health insurance. Well, we said that's kind of crazy. Um, and if you're a Republican, you, you want to want people who've got the ability to, to to contribute in the workforce, especially given the fact there's lots of new technology that allow disabled people to contribute. We don't want people to be in the workforce. We want to want them to fulfill um, their their potential to be taxpayers, to be independent, to feel that that sense of self fulfillment of being in the workforce, and and so that should appeal to you as a Republican. As a Democrat, you, you you should and you traditionally have had great concern and compassion for those who've had struggles in their life, who have had barriers to to be able to fulfill their potential, uh, and and so those principles should be appealing to you. We've got to find the way to talk to both sides on some of these key issues including housing that is appealing uh and for which people understand and can and can find agreement because the same language that you use to persuade a Republican might be different than the language that you use to persuade a Democrat. That doesn't mean that you're contradicting one another. It just means that you're emphasizing different things.
2: That's right. That's right. Uh, you have to talk to different markets uh, in a different way. And anybody who's worked in the public sector uh, uh, or private sector also uh, will is aware of that. You, you, don't, you can't give the... Uh, The same speech to everybody. So um, we we do have to take our final break. And when we come back, uh, we're going to find out a little more about what's ahead for Mr. Lazio. You're listening to the Costa Report. If you listen to the news today, you might come away with the impression that our biggest challenges are political and economic. But if this were true, then countries which have different political and economic systems would be facing different problems. But they aren't. Every government and every nation is struggling with job creation, debt, immigration, climate change, terrorism, health care, energy, and wild swings in financial markets. So something else must be going on. That's why I'm inviting you to get a copy of The Watchman's Rattle a book which shows how the Roman, Mayan, and Khmer empires once faced similar challenges and what we can do to avoid their fate. Visit RebeccaCosta.com today and get a copy of The Watchman's Rattle because once you do, you'll never look at the world the same way.
8: Hi, I'm Amy Tobin, cookbook author and culinary expert. Strawberries, blueberries, blackberries and raspberries. Dole has a bounty of berries ripe for the picking. Fresh berries are not only delicious but some of the most powerful disease fighting foods available. Researchers have found that berries have some of the highest antioxidant levels of any fresh fruits. So add a handful or two of your favorite berries to your next meal and enjoy their nutritional benefits and natural sweetness in all of your dishes from salads to desserts and everything in between. For fresh tips and ideas from Dole's berry experts, visit berries.dole.com. And be sure to check out the pages of mouthwatering recipes. Whether it's a sweet and savory blueberry cranberry chicken salad or a simple strawberry sorbet, Dole has the perfect berry to inspire your next berrylicious dish.
6: Did you know that 9 out of 10 couples don't agree on the firmness of their mattress? That's right, 90%. He likes it firmer, she likes it softer, or vice versa. And the only bed, the only bed offered, that allows you to each have your own way is the Sleep Number Bed. Dual Air technology is what makes it possible. It's a simple concept, but unique to Sleep Number. Each side of the bed is individually adjustable to whatever degree of firmness or softness you happen to want, at the touch of a button. My Sleep Number is... 85, I need a firm mattress, and that's what works for me. I've had back problems, and this makes me sleep well. I get up relaxed and refreshed. Celeste couldn't handle that. Her sleep number setting is 50. But with that difference in setting both of us sleep well on sleep number, so will you. Go to Seaside, California, right next to the Cost Plus World Trade Market on Fremont Street, and you'll find a sleep number store well-stocked with all of their models go get a demonstration and move up from a conventional mattress to the sleep number mattress tell me heard about it from charlie friedman at ksco
7: Shh. it's the best kept secret in santa cruz See the 59th annual Santa Cruz Follies coming to the Santa Cruz Civic Auditorium September 10 through 13. Matinees at 1 p.m. with a special additional show Friday night, September 12 at 7 p.m. Pre-show entertainment will spotlight great local Santa Cruz talent. Wednesday, Coastal Blend. Thursday, Three and Accord. Friday, Jade DeVore. Friday night, Swift Street Brass. And Saturday, Coastal Blend. So don't miss it.
2: Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa and today my guest is Rick Lazio. And we were talking briefly about uh, leadership in Washington, D.C. And uh, speaking of leadership, we have a midterm election coming up soon, uh, 435 seats in the in the House and 33 Senate seats up for grabs. But uh, there are a lot of folks who feel that even if the GOP wins the House and Senate, uh, nothing much will change. There will still be gridlock, still lack of movement on these large problems that seem to move from one administration to another. W- what are your thoughts?
3: Well, I think, number one, uh, I I think most experts I know that look at this closely uh, believe that Republicans will retain control in the House. I don't think there's that much disagreement about that. Mm -hmm. Uh, On the Senate side, that obviously is a a closer call. Uh, I've seen, you know, there's probably... The seats that are, that are up this year, uh, the, the Republicans need six to come into the majority and control the Senate. They they, they have three that I think are are not really any longer in, in contest that are currently being held by Democrats and which which they'll win. Um, and I think Democrats basically concede on those three. They need to pick up three more. And um, and they've got six or seven states where they're where they're it's a toss up frankly in in, in Alaska and Colorado and Arkansas Louisiana Iowa North Carolina uh, New Hampshire uh you know the president is struggling uh today's Gallup poll has him at, at 38% approval uh 54% disapprove so that that's uh that, that's that's a bit of water to carry, frankly, for Democrats in the Senate. They certainly it's it's within the realm of possibilities for them to retain control of the Senate. But your question is, what do you do? If, what do the Republicans do with the majority mm-hmm. if they if they end up with the House and the Senate? And and the answer is is if they end up with gridlock, uh, if they end up w- with no vision, if they end up not being able to uh, pass a, a a a good agenda and by that I mean on energy, on, on tax reform, um, uh, perhaps on education, uh, on infrastructure, uh, then it's going to be a very short-lived majority. Uh, Yes, it is. And
2: they they may have hurt themselves for the presidential election. So I I don't know. I mean, if people are right, it's not going to make any difference. The gridlock will still persist. It may not be the wisest strategic move to win the Senate and go into a gridlock mode because uh, you pay for that later down the road. Um, You know, every year. Uh, and you know this. Your name appears on short lists for everything from governor to vice presidential candidate. Uh, but for over a decade, you s- stepped away from politics. Uh, do you mind if I ask you why you stepped away?
3: I had a very tough race against Hillary Clinton in 2000. Um, you know, as, as you had mentioned in the beginning of the show, uh, Rudy Giuliani was supposed to be the candidate uh Republican candidate here in New York, and and he uh, announced late in the campaign, just five months before election day, that he had prostate cancer and that he didn't feel he could uh, he, he could stay in the race. Until and you dropped. stepped in, yeah. I I, I stepped in, um, and I have no regrets about about that. Uh, regrets about <laughs> some aspects of the campaign, but no regrets about about running and uh, and putting myself out there and talking about the the issues that I really care about and and trying to find that middle ground which I am a strong believer in kind of the radical center you know <laughs> I think just because you 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 look for solutions and you you you're a seeker uh of of solutions uh that bring parties together that you're any less passionate than somebody that's on the far fringes on either the right or the left and I still believe in that. So 10 years went by, and I, I ran an organization called the Financial Services Forum, which was a group of CEOs of the largest financial services firms in the world. And I went over to J.P. Morgan for several years um, and, and had some great opportunities there. But there was always this siren song, this calling for me wondering, is this what my life is supposed to be about? Um, you know, is this... is it, I always felt better when I was serving, when I was mm-hmm. doing something for somebody else, mm-hmm. or or trying to leave some legacy in my own modest way. And so I think that that in the end uh, convinced me that that uh, in my own home state, where I saw things not headed in the right direction, um, that perhaps I should leave a more comfortable, <laughs> more financially rewarding position and, and, and reenter the the public arena and offer myself and my thoughts. And, um, and it was hard, Rebecca. I mean, being out of public life for 10 years uh, you don't have the same donor base. Your volunteers get older. Uh, you're not an incumbent any, anymore. So uh, that's got all kinds of implications in a campaign and And we just couldn 't really totally pull it off uh, and New York state is a is a difficult state. I found myself, and I still feel this way. That I am in no man's land. Uh, for some Republicans that are very, very conservative, they don't think I'm conservative enough. Um, they think I'm too moderate. And then, uh, <laughs> you
2: know, well, that's part uh, of so the problem. We've driven every moderate out of Washington D.C., and that is exactly why we have the condition we have. We have gridlock um, because those people who are willing to listen, even so much as listen to the other side are looked at as turncoats, and uh, they're yeah. driven out. They're driven out of Washington, D.C., and so those people who can who can broker progress for this country uh, are alienated from either party, and, and believe me, it's not just the GOP. The Democrats are that way, too. You, yeah, you, no, no,
3: no, that, that's you absolutely. Can't, yeah, you absolutely.
2: can't cross the aisle. It's not like the old days where you could walk into someone's office, close the door, and say, tell me why I ought to vote on this, and if you All make right, sense, is- I will vote. Absolutely, and you can't do that anymore.
3: Even even as recently as ten or fifteen years ago, uh, you you had that culture. But we've met the enemy; it's us. We have you know complacent voters, voters that are not going out to the not not learning about the candidates, throwing the towel in, saying I don't really care, I don't have a choice. Well, you know, go to the voting booth and write somebody in. Just go and show that you care and that you're involved, and that you've got ownership of the governance of your community of your state of your of your country and there are people out there that will respond I, I i know in washington there are people like democrat like tom Copper from delaware a very decent reasonable man rob portman one of the smartest most decent uh, most effective people in washington if those kinds of people can get in the right leadership position they can change the tone and i am
2: they absolutely can topic. but uh, I, I can hear the passion in your voice and <laughs> i would say sir uh it may be time to throw your i i know it's hard to leave the private sector where the uh where the paychecks are much better and the hours a lot less but uh but uh, i hear the passion in your voice and uh, you know uh, as a as an evolutionary biologist i can tell you that in every species there are those that are called the super cooperators they are born to serve the greater good uh, it may very well be that you have that genetic imperative, and no size of any paycheck will ever satisfy you until you are serving the greater good again. So uh, I can hear it in your voice, and uh, and it might be time to jump back in there. Uh, but uh, but let me know if you do, and uh, we'll we'll invite you back, and we'll uh, we'll make sure we give you the right coverage. Unfortunately, we are uh, just about ready to run into the news at the top of the hour. But uh, before we say goodbye, I do. Want want to take a moment to thank you for keeping the issue of affordable housing alive and also for your service to our nation. Thank you, Mr. Lazio.
3: Thank you, Rebecca. It was wonderful to be on. And thank you to you, to the audience for, for tuning in and, and listening and learning.
2: Thank you so much, and come back soon. Now, if your station is leaving us after this hour and you have a question or a comment to make about our interview with Rick Lazio today, uh, take a moment to email me at rebeccacosta.com or drop me a note on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn. In particular, if if you have something to say on whether housing should be left up to the market to correct or whether you want to see the government take more of an active role in making a safe place to live achievable for low-income Americans. Uh, According to Maslow, His hierarchy of needs, food, water, shelter, and safety are uh, among the most basic of human needs, but so often well-intended government programs go awry and, and the result's not what we hoped for, and when it comes to housing... What what do you think we should do? Are all Americans entitled to a a safe place to live? Uh, Email me and tell me what you think at RebeccaCosta.com. And if you missed the full interview with Lazio or any of our other guests, remember that you can download previous episodes of the Costa Report from our website, Apple iTunes, Podbean, and our YouTube channel. And while you're at our website, be sure to check out my book, The Watchman's Rattle. If you want to know why a problem like housing is so tough, To get our arms around, this book not only explains why complex issues like this get away from us, but exactly how they migrate from generation to generation in spite of having the means and resources to rectify our problems. Uh, To commemorate the anniversary of September 11th, My guest next week is renowned expert on the collapse of great civilizations, Eric Klein. He's going to be here to talk about how globalization and interdependency brought a sudden end to the Bronze Age and tell us whether history is in fact repeating itself. Don't miss historian and author Eric Klein next week on the only weekly news program which puts policy ahead of politics. Now stay tuned for another hour of Straight Talk Radio. You're listening to The Costa Report.